We're looking at Genesis chapters 32 to 33, Jacob and Esau. Catch you up, bring you up to speed. Uh, Jacob uh, just has, you know, has been gridlocked in this just rivalry, this intense rivalry with his brother Esau pretty much his whole life. I mean, even before his birth. I mean, he kind of was born, came out of his mother's womb, grasping at Esau's heels, contending with him. And so there's just this, you know... Um, you know, this tension that, that exists between the two of them their entire lives. They competed for their parents' attention and affection. Uh, Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. Rebekah loved Jacob more than Esau. Jacob, uh, you know, tricked and scammed his brother out of his birthright, the double portion of the inheritance. Uh, later, Isaac, uh, um, later Jacob deceived and, and lied to his father Isaac in order to extract the blessing that Isaac intended to give to Esau, to, uh, to, to Jacob. And so, so after all of this, Esau is furious. He says, I'm going to kill uh, my brother Jacob. He, he's conned me. He's tricked me one too many times. I'm gonna mur- as soon as my dad dies, I'm going to murder my brother Jacob. And Jacob runs away uh, to the home of, of Laban. Which kind of, I mean, it's, I mean, it's the recurring pattern that we see in Jacob's life. He, he kind of drops a bomb, uh, you know, hurts people, deceives them, cons them, uh, manipulates them, and then runs away. Just kind of, kind of leaves, uh, right, rather than kind of facing the consequences, owning up, reconciling, figuring it out, he just leaves. And so, uh, in chapter 29, he goes to Laban's house, and then, and Jacob actually kind of meets his match in, in Laban. Uh, Laban deceives Jacob. Laban, uh, tricks Jacob into working for him for pennies on the dollar for 20 years, uh, makes Laban rich, and gives Jacob a sore back. And then finally, after all of that time, Jacob says, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go start my own uh, family, start my own business. And, um, and so he sets out. And that brings us up to Genesis chapter 32, which is where we'll pick up the story today. Jacob leaving um, his, uh, the, the home of Laban and heading back to the land of Canaan, where his family is from, where, where Abraham and Isaac have kind of been. And Jacob wants to head back there. So it's a long text. I'm just going to, to pray and we're going to work through it as we go. We don't have time to read it all at the, at the top, like we traditionally do uh, this morning. So I'm going to pray. And then we're just going to work our way through Genesis chapters 32 and 33. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning, asking for your mercy as we open your word together. We ask you to speak to us. We ask you to encourage us. We ask you to equip us. And Lord, we ask you to uh, help us to hear from you. We ask you to soften our hearts so that we can respond rightly to your word uh, with repentance and faith. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, verse 1, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. So Jacob is leaving uh, Haran, which is, uh, well, I think we have a map coming up in a minute or two. We'll get there in just a second. Jacob leaves and uh, these, these angels meet him, which is uh, kind of an interesting detail. It's kind of reminiscent of uh, when Jacob was on his way to Laban's home. And there's the, the ladder uh, and, and um, you know, God kind of communicates to Jacob and, and kind of speaks to him. And so he, he meets these angels again. In verse 2, Jacob saw them and he says, this is God. God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. So Jacob, you know, sees these angels and he, 
you know, declares that this place where I, you know, encountered God and the messengers of God, it, it, like Jacob is starting to grow up, right? He's starting to, you know, he's been, for much of his life, he's been a punk and a jerk and a, a thief. Um, and, and now he's starting to grow up. He's got people to take care of. And so he, he kind of declares, this is God's camp. I want to follow God. I am, you know, I am uh, making it a point to, to, to be a man who follows God from this point forward. Verse 3, Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Let's, do we have a, a map on the next? Yeah, perfect. So, so yeah, uh, Jacob uh, kind of starts down here in, in Canaan, um, and he travels all the way up to Haran, um, way up there in the top right in the northeast, and that's where he spends 20 years working for Laban, marrying Rachel and Leah, and having 11 sons and one daughter. And then after he finally can't take any more, he, he sets out and he heads back down uh, to Canaan. But on his way, he kind of anticipates that his brother Esau, who has since relocated to the southwest down to Seir, uh, that he might come up to intercept him on his trip back from Haran uh, down to, to Canaan. So he sends messengers to go to, to the house of Esau to kind of just, you know, smooth things over and maybe hope that he'll be well received. Verse 6, And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. So Esau is mad and, or yeah, Esau is coming to meet you. We don't think he's happy because if he were happy, he might not have kind of come strapped with that many kind of, you know, armed men. We think he is maybe looking for a fight. Verse 7, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. It's like a reasonable reaction. He divided the people who were with him, the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau attacks one camp, or if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So, I mean, this might partially be a function of kind of Esau's, uh, you know, trickery or, you know, kind of hedging his bets and kind of, you know, situating things in his best interest. Or it might be a function of Esau growing up a little bit, or Jacob growing up a little bit and saying, you know, maybe 20 years ago, if I had heard something like this was happening, I would have run the other direction. I would have been like, you guys all, good luck with Esau. I'm going to sneak out the back door and not be here anymore. But instead, he's actually taking, you know, uh, going, going to great lengths here to, to kind of try to mitigate any losses that might come from this uh, encounter with Esau. Jacob is starting to, to look out for his wives and his, his children. Verse 9, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan and now I have become two camps. I started out poor, now I'm rich. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me the mothers with the mothers with the children. But you, God, you said to me, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is a radically different Jacob than we've seen up until this point. 
Right? He's, he's changing. He's maturing. He's, he's growing. If you, I mean, I would do some homework this week and compare these verses, uh, verses 9 through 12, to Jacob's prayer back in Genesis chapter 28. And it is uh, ridiculous how, how different they, they are. Jacob's prayer in, verse, in uh, Genesis 28, he says, If God will be with me, if God will keep me in the way that I go, if God will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, if God will bring me safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God, and then I will give a tenth of everything that I have to God. So, so Jacob, before he goes to Laban's house, it's this, you know, uh, God is lucky to have me, and I might, if I see fit, decide to follow God, be you know on God's team, give a tenth of everything that I have to God, but it's all conditioned upon God uh, meeting my demands. I'm in the position of power in this negotiation. I have my demands. If they're met, then maybe I will uh, comply with with you know what with my end of the of the bargain. And now Jacob is praying, right. God, I am not worthy of the least of, of the, the steadfast love and faithfulness that you've... Right? Jacob recognizes that I am weak, I am frail, I am needy, I am broken, I need God's grace. He recognizes that up until this point, God has shown him grace. Right? He, he's, he's mindful of the ways that God has treated him better than he deserves to be treated. Right? I left, you know, before with, with, with nothing in my hands, but now I'm coming back and I, I've been, I've been, you know, blessed richly and lavishly by God. And he, he, you know, uh, you know, speaks his, his requests and his desires and his fears honestly to God. Deliver me from the hand of my brother uh, Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me. And then verse 12, he, he kind of circles it all back and he, he reiterates and he kind of lands on. He, he punctuates his prayer with uh, a remembering and a reaffirmation of God's sovereignty and his goodness and his promises. Right? You said that I will do you good, that I will make your offspring... As as numerous as the the seashore. Back in back in Genesis twenty eight, it was demands, entitlement. Here's what I expect. Here's what I want. Now it's please deliver me. Please take care of me. Please pr- protect me. Genesis twenty eight. God was small. Jacob was big. Genesis thirty two. God is big. Jacob is small. A completely different mentality. A completely different heart posture. Jacob has grown. He's grown to trust God. He's grown to see his need for God. This prayer in, in uh, Genesis 32 is in a lot of ways a template or a paradigm for what godly Christian prayer looks like. Verse 13, so he stayed there that night and from what he, from what he had, he took with him a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys, right? Jacob's trying to kind of, you know, ease the tension, see if he can kind of, you know, Proverbs 18, 16 says that a gift opens the door for the giver and ushers him into the presence of kings, right? Jacob recognizes that like, if I, you know, I probably want to lead with kindness and grace and, and, uh, you know, not with hostility or, or resentment, which is probably, you know, probably a helpful 
Just a helpful cue for us to take, right? If you need something from someone, it's better to lead with kindness, generosity, winsomeness, instead of complaining, demanding, making noise. Verse 16, uh, these he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put space between drove and drove. So he's going to send these guys in waves. He kind of wants them to wash over Esau one after the other, after the other, after the other, in the hopes that each one is going to have a heart softening effect on Esau and keep him from wanting to kill him. He instructed the first, when, my, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? Uh, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. Likewise, he instructed the second and the third and all who followed in droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you see him. Say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with this present that goes on ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed the night in the camp. The same night, Jacob arose, and he took his two wives and his female servants and his eleven children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them, and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. So Jacob has hedged his bets, kind of divided his, his uh, property, his estate into two kind of different, you know, sections that are, that are, he's hoping, you know, both of them, at least one, if not both of them can survive. He's, uh, you know, prepared this gift and sent it to Esau intentionally uh, with the, with the hopes that it will have a heart softening effect. Verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. Which is, which is how oftentimes how God works in the hearts and lives of his people. He, he, he kind of puts them into the crucible of hardship, suffering. I mean, Jacob has spent 20 years working for a cruel, selfish boss, slaving away, working too hard, getting paid too little. He's been tricked. He's been duped. He's frustrated. He's anxious. He finally kind of gets up and, and walks away. And then immediately as he leaves there, he kind of hears, he gets word that his brother wants to come and kill him. The consequences of the sins of his youth are going to be uh, visited back on him. He's intimidated. He's scared. And all of that, all of those difficult, painful circumstances, he's kind of swirling in. And within all of that, he uh, you know, finds himself alone in silence and solitude with just him and the, the Lord. Which in my experience is often how God works in the hearts and the lives of his people. He uses suffering. He uses difficulty. He uses hardship to soften their heart, to mold them, to ply them, to make them, uh, you know, who he wants them to be. And he also uses silence and solitude in the lives of his people, right? That's where, right, when, when God gets his people alone, that's where he can speak to them. That's where he can convict them of sin. That's where he, they're, they're, they're undistracted. They're able to listen and read his word and hear from him. Difficulty, suffering, persecution in our lives is not something that we should resent or, or always try to avoid outright. God will allow painful things to come into our lives and then God will get us alone so that he can speak to us and work on us and, and change us. Right? Corporate prayer is great. 
right? We, we're, we're, we're thinking a lot as elders about how we can kind of inject more corporate prayer into the life of this church. We want our people to, to gather together and pray and encourage one another through the ministry of prayer that's done together. But private prayer is just as important as corporate prayer. God, here's where I'm at. Here's what I'm experiencing. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm afraid of. Here's what I'm worried about. Here's where I need you to intervene. You're my father and I need you to take care of me. There's, there's certain kinds of communication with God that doesn't happen in the context of corporate prayer that does happen in the context of private prayer. So when you experience suffering and difficulty in your life, don't resent it, don't fight it, don't resent God for it, don't flee from it, but rather get alone and be with God in the midst of it so that you can hear him as he speaks to you, shapes you, and refines you. Jacob was left all alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. It's a strange text. This is a weird, you know. Um, yeah, there's, there's some, some things that are difficult to explain or, or understand in the middle of this text. Uh, what we're going to see as the story unfolds is that in all likelihood, this man that Jacob is wrestling with is God himself appearing in human form, right? We're going to see that he acts with power and, and divine authority. He speaks with divine authority. He refers to himself as God. Jacob walks away and refers to him retroactively as God. This isn't some random man. It's probably not an angel. Uh, it sounds like it's God in human form. It's a pre-incarnate manifestation of the person of Jesus Christ. Same guy that Abraham saw back in Genesis chapter 18 uh, prior to uh, the, the episodes at Sodom and, and Gomorrah. So God himself, in the form of a man, comes and wrestles with, with Jacob. Jacob is the guy who has been wrestling with everyone his entire life. Right? He wrestled with Esau in his mother's womb. He came out grabbing his heel. He wrestled with Esau for, for the attention of his, of his parents. He, he wrestled with Esau for their inheritance. He, he wrestled with Isaac, deceiving and, and lying. He wrestled with Laban, right? Striving and contending and competing. He married, he married Rachel and Leah, who then proceeded to wrestle with each other for the love and affection of Jacob, uh, so much so that, uh, that one of them named their son Wrestling. Right? The name Naphtali means wrestling. In Genesis 30, Rachel says, with mighty wrestlings, Naphtali, I have wrestled with my sister. And so now I'm going to name my son Naphtali, Wrestling. So Jacob's whole entire life has just been one big wrestling match. One, right, just, you know, the, the, the opponents keep tagging in for each other, one after the other after the other. He spends his entire life fighting, contending, wrestling with every single person. And now God appears to him and says, you know, I don't know if you are aware of it or not, but your entire life you've been wrestling with me. Not your brother, not your dad, not your uncle, not your wives, not your kids, not, you know, the entire life, your entire life you've been wrestling with me. 
Right? You've, been, you've been contending with me for control and sovereignty over your own life. You want to do things your way. You don't want to submit to God, listen to God. You don't want to let God run your life. You want to be the one who runs your own life. You want to be in control. You want to be the king. You want to be so- but, but God is sovereign. God is in control. God is the king. And so there's this tension of competing with God, contending with God for sovereignty and supremacy in your life been wrestling with God. Which is, you know, something that I think all of us, to one degree or another, are familiar with. This idea of wrestling with God, contending with God, right? Uh, you know, wanting elbow room, wa- wanting, to, to, wanting our own will to be done in our lives rather than, than God's will, resenting the idea that there's someone else other than me who gets the final word over me. I am accountable to him. He tells me what to do and I have to listen to him. And we fight and we push back against it. A friend of mine's a surfer. And he, uh, he says he loves surfing not just because it's fun, and not just because it's, you know, you know, burns good, good exercise, burns calories. But he says he likes surfing because there's an interesting spiritual analogy to when he goes surfing, which is this, this exact thing, right? You, you kind of paddle out. And the way, when you surf, the waves are just going to do what they're going to do. You're not going to change the trajectory or the, or the ferocity of, of the wave. The waves are what they are. That you can, you can fight against them. You can paddle against them. You can resent them, you can hate them, you can yell at them, but the waves are going to do what the waves are going to do. And the, no matter how you feel as the surfer, uh, you're, you're going to be, you're either going to be a, a, obliterated by the waves as they kind of wash over you and kind of send you flying, or you're going to have to merge with the wave and, and catch it and, and ride it. And he says, that's kind of how, uh, you know, that's how our spiritual lives are with God. God is sovereign. We can't change God. We can't change the character of God. We can't change the will of God. You can hate it. You can fight it. You can resent it. You can, you know, struggle against it, paddle upstream against it. But ultimately... You'll just end up being exhausted or obliterated by the sovereign will of God that's going the direction it was going before, or you can merge with it and you can kind of recognize the sovereignty of God and embrace it and walk in it and and kind of ride with the sovereignty of God instead of pushing and paddling against it. And God is saying, you know, your whole life you've been wrestling against me, taking advantage of others, lying cheating, stealing, ripping people off, wrestling. I've called you to be faithful. I've called you to trust me. I've called you to love your neighbor. I've called you to be godly and Christ-like, and you've been wrestling against that calling, and now you're exhausted on the verge of death. And are you finally willing to, to trust me? And Jacob's getting there, right? He's, he's growing, but he's still a work in progress. He's not entirely there yet. Because he continues to wrestle with Jesus, wrestle with this man, all throughout the night until the breaking of day, until, until morning. In verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So Jesus, the sovereign king of the universe, who could uh, I- instantly, you know, on a whim, just crush Jacob entirely, condescends, comes down to meet him, actively decides to, you know, uh, 
you know, lower himself, incarnate himself down to Jacob's level so that they can, you know, wrestle together, right? Like when, like at the crucifixion, when Jesus, uh, you know, Jesus' disciples are all drawing their swords and they're wanting to kind of, you know, have this, this, they want to just take out all the guards right now. And Jesus says, I'm way stronger than you or them or anyone like don't you think that if that I could summon an army of countless angels that would come and and lay waste to these people if I wanted to right Jesus says there and here I'm infinitely stronger than you realize and yet I'm kind of presenting myself in the form of of weakness for your sake so Jesus willingly makes himself weak makes himself small small enough that that Jacob um you know, can't, uh, that Jacob doesn't, he's not defeated instantly, but kind of the perfect amount of weakness so that Jacob can't win, but he also doesn't lose. And they fight all night long. And then at the exact moment, uh, you know, Jacob or Jesus touches his hip and kind of pulls it out of, of joint. Thus, you know, another kind of reason why we can deduce that this is probably Christ, because this is some supernatural power that he is working with here. Verse 26. And then Jacob says, let me, or yeah, then Jesus says, let me go for the day has broken, right? The match is over. Get off me, like beat it. And Jacob says, I will not go unless you bless me. Which kind of helps us understand a little bit what's going on in Jacob's heart and kind of what's informing all of Jacob's actions up until this point. That he's been... Uh, craving and striving for and just in, a, in the desperate pursuit of blessing. My father doesn't love me. He loves my brother more than me. He wants to spend time with Esau instead of me. He ignores me. I desperately want the love and affection and attention of my father. I've never gotten it. I want his blessing. I had to deceive him in order to get a blessing from him. And he's kind of walked around his entire life with this wound of having had a father that didn't love him. So I'll act out and try to get his attention, right? If I can't have his inheritance, I'll steal it from my brother. If I can't have his blessing, then I'll lie to him and trick it and take it from him. I desperately want my father's blessing. I'll stop at nothing to get it. But then deep and deep kind of beneath all that, beneath the, beneath the, the craving and the desire for this blessing from his earthly father, Isaac, is a spiritual longing for the assurance that, that his soul craves that, that his heavenly father, that his spiritual father loves him. That the God of his grandfather Abraham, the God of his father Isaac, was his God too. That the covenant promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac were for him as, as well. Deep down in his soul, Jacob is, is running scared, afraid that God doesn't love him, afraid that God won't accept him, afraid that God will reject him and cast him out. And he's desperate for the blessing of God. He's desperate for the presence of God. And he's been pursuing it his entire life. Admittedly, in ill-advised ways, but he's been pursuing the presence and the blessing of God his entire life. Which is convicting, right? It makes me wonder if the same can be said of us. If someone were to observe our life, observe my life, observe your life, uh, is it marked by a deep, soul-level desire 
to know God, have God, experience the presence of God, the blessing of God? Do, do I, am I indifferent to whether or not God loves me, cares about me, whether or not the covenant promises of God are for me? Or do, do I care about them? Am I willing to pursue them with zeal and with tenacity? How far am I willing to go as I pursue God, right? Am I willing to give God an hour on Sunday mornings, 10% of my income, a little bit here and there, or am I willing to, to pursue God with tenacity, even if, it's, uh, even if the calling is costly or, or radical? Am I willing to practice sacrificial generosity with others? Am I willing to be bold and faithful and stand up for the truth of the gospel even when it's not popular? Am I willing to obey the commands of God and pursue holiness even if it's not convenient, even if everyone thinks that it's, that it's foolish? God has called us to discipleship that is often costly and painful and difficult. And the question before us is, will we follow hard after God? Will we pursue God tenaciously with a deep longing that we want the presence of God and the the blessing of God. Jacob pursues God. He pursues the blessing of God with tenacity. Verse 27, and he said to him, what is your name? This is key, right? This verse 27, he says, Jacob, this is kind of Jacob finally symbolically confessing his own weakness. The name Jacob means schemer, trickster, supplanter, con man. What's your name? He says, I, my name is Jacob. I am a liar. I am a thief. And then he says back to him, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. You're not going to be known as the liar and the thief and the con man anymore. Your name will be Israel for you have striven with, striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Israel comes from two Hebrew words, serah, which means contends or persists, and el, which means God. So this name either means contends with God, referring to Jacob, or it means God contends, God persists, God strives, God prevails. So Jacob, your name used to be, I am a villain, but now, from now on, your name is going to be, God is the hero. Right, we're going we're gonna to change your, your name. From this point forward, you're going to have a different outlook on, on life. Because right here, right now, I am assuring you that I, the, the love and the, the, the blessing that you've spent your whole life looking for, craving, desiring, tricking people so that you could have it, fighting with me, wrestling with me, clinging on to me so that you could have it, the love and the blessing that you've spent your entire life wanting, I'm assuring you that you have it. And then Jacob asked him, well then, please tell me your name. He says, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. There Jesus blessed Jacob. He finally gets the blessing that he's been seeking for his entire life. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen the face of God, or I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. I finally saw God, right? The, the, that which I've been striving for, running after, desiring my whole entire life, I've seen it. And I recognize now that God had the authority, had the power to crush me, to end my life, but he decided to spare my life. Verse 31, the sun rose up and as he passed Penuel, limping, 
because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew on the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip at the sinew on the thigh. That's, that's how, this is how Christians walk after they have an encounter with Christ. They don't walk with a swagger. They don't walk with a strut. They don't walk with their chest puffed out thinking that they are uh, awesome. Right? When, when God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's sovereignty, God's judgment, God's wrath, God's authority comes into conflict with my sin, my weakness, my frailty, my brokenness, my unworthiness, the result is that you, you limp away. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the glory of God and he immediately says, Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Which in a lot of ways is kind of an, uh, an illustration of, of how Jacob is walking and what Jacob's life looks like as he walks away from this encounter with Christ. Chapter 33, Jacob lifts up his eyes and looks, and behold, there's Esau coming with 400 men with him. Yikes. Time to pay the piper. He divided his children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put servants with him in front, put the servants and their children in front, then Leah and her children, then Rachel and Joseph last of all. This is just, this is the familial sin that's been, you know, the the sin of favoritism and loving uh, one child more than another, one spouse more than another, that results in sibling rivalry and tension and infighting and dysfunction and drama. It's still kind of reverberating even now. Verse 3, he, he himself went on before them, bowing to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. So Jacob's growing up. Instead of running away, he puts himself, or instead of kind of putting all of his family between him and the bullets, he stands in front of them. He is going to protect them, even if it means uh, sacrificing himself. But verse 4, Esau ran to him and met him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Huge plot twist. Right, We thought Esau was going to kill Jacob. Esau hugs and kisses Jacob. God is showing grace to Jacob by softening Esau's heart to Jacob and giving Esau the gift of forgiveness for Jacob. Verse 5, when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, uh, The children, God has graciously given your servant. The servants drew near, they and their children, they bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And Joseph and Rachel last of all drew near and they bowed down. Verse 8, what do you mean by this? What, what's meant by all this company that I met? Why, who are all these people bringing all of these Amazon boxes? What's going on? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. It's a gift from me to you in the hopes that we might reconcile together. You're my brother. I love you. I want to have a relationship with you. I don't want you to kill me. Verse 9, Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept this blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and I have enough. And he urged him, and he took it. 
Verse 12, and then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. Uh, so so now, now he realizes these 400 armed men that I brought, they weren't brought here to kill you. They were brought here to protect you. We're out in the open country. It's dangerous. Let me stay with you. I'll go ahead of you. We'll journey together. Jacob says, my Lord knows that the children are frail. The nursing flocks and herds are, are a care to me. If they're driven hard for even one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord Esau pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead slowly at the pace that the livestock that are ahead of me and the pace of our children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So he says, you go back to your house. We need to just relax. We've been running at a pretty fast clip here. We're going to stop. We're going to, you know, refresh ourselves. Verse 15. All right, well, then let me leave some of these people who are here with me. Right? So let me, let me leave some of these 400 men with you to protect you out here in the open country. And Jacob says, what need is there? Just let me find favor in the sight of my Lord Esau. So he says, you know, it's kind of you to offer these men to protect us, but we don't need armed men because God has promised us that he will protect us. God has promised to give us land and offspring and and blessing. He's promised to be with me and to never leave me. Uh, Esau, I don't want your armed men as bodyguards. All I want from you is forgiveness and reconciliation so that we can be brothers once again. Verse 16, Esau returned on that day and went to Seir. Verse 17, but Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock, and therefore he called the place Sukkoth. Verse 18, and Jacob stayed, uh, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped in the city. So Esau heads back down uh, to the southwest. Jacob takes a, turns right and goes over into the city, uh, into the land of Canaan, with the land that God has promised uh, him and his forefathers. Verse 19, and the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he, brought, he bought for a, a hundred pieces of money and the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. So Jacob makes his way back to Canaan. Buy, right? He says, I'm not, I'm not renting anymore. I'm not, I'm not migrating anymore. I'm not traveling nomad anymore. I'm buying land. I'm settling down. This is my home. This home means the mighty God of Israel. This is my land. We're going to dwell here, live here, worship God here, put down roots here, raise our kids here. They're going to live here. God has always kept his promises to us. The mighty God of Israel has always kept his promises, and we're going to erect an altar to remember that reality. I may have struggled to believe that God would keep his promises to me, Much of my biography uh, is is indicative of the fact that I didn't believe that God would keep his promises. I desperately wanted God to keep his promises, and I was going to wrestle and fight and make sure that I experienced what God had already promised me that I already had from him. But the reality is, God has kept his promises. And that's the the big idea of the whole story of, of Jacob. Spent his whole life desperate to experience the blessing of God. Desperate to be assured that the promises of God were for him as well. Desperate to know that God loves him. Desperate to know that God will take care of him. So that he doesn't have to be anxious. So that he doesn't have to worry. So that he doesn't have to live life like an orphan without a father. That's how Jacob has lived his entire life. And it culminates with him saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. That's how Jacob lived. That's not... How we have to live. 
If you know Christ, you don't have to worry about whether or not God loves you like Jacob worried. Because God has shown you through the person and work of Christ that He does love you. You don't have to spend your life searching and looking for this assurance that God will bless you. You can rest knowing that He will, knowing that He does, knowing that He has because of what Christ has done for you. When Jesus came here for you, He was obedient to the will of the Father. Jesus submitted Himself not just to a dislocated hip. Jesus submitted Himself to death, even death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, Jacob wrestled to gain a blessing for himself. Jesus went to Calvary and was crushed in order to gain a blessing for you and for me. So that we never have to live in fear like Jacob did. So that we never have to wonder if our Father loves us like Jacob did. If you know Christ... If you have turned from your sin and trusted in Him, then you have unfettered access to God through Christ. You can walk in relationship with God through Christ and you can cry out, not not what Jacob cried out, right? Uh, I will not let you go unless or until you bless me. Rather, you can cry out to God, Lord, I will not let you go because... You have blessed me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the unchanging, unconditional, eternal promises of God, for the glorious reality that we have been saved from our sin through the sufficiency of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We thank you for forgiving us and giving us new life. And Lord, we pray that we could respond rightly to the gospel, that we could turn from our sin, trust in you, follow hard after you, even when it is costly, and that we could love our neighbor. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.